Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by Eagle Moss and the official Star Trek Starships XL Collection, a special series of large format ships officially authorized by CBS Studios. Subscribe today and receive the USS Enterprise D for 20% off the regular price with free shipping. For details and order, visit st-starshipsxl.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 256, Masks. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek, taking it apart for messages, morals, and meanings, and seeing whether the whole thing stands the test of time. This week, Masks. The one where Cher plays the mother of a child with an unfortunate birth defect. Mm, no. Oh, uh, then it's it's masks. The one where robots that change shape save the world. That's actually a tiny bit closer. No, this is actually the one where we meet the long, long, long dead pantheon of a long, long, long dead civilization that's trying to come back to life on the Enterprise. Coming up... John's going to do trivia in 12 different voices, not all at once. But first... But first, Ken, they're teeny tiny spaceships, but they're not teeny tiny. (laughs) The XL edition. Now, uh, Eagle Moss has created these based on fan demand. And I get it, because you and I saw the larger format NCC-1701 original series Enterprise, Mm. and we saw the 1701D, and we saw the 1701E, and we were like, wow, uh, bigger is good. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yes, the official Star Trek Starships XL editions are officially authorized by CBS Studios and feature premium format Starships, from across all the Star Trek TV series, plus each of the movies, all the way from Star Trek Motion Picture through Star Trek Beyond. Now, each one of these ships has gone through extensive reference study and been reproduced under the supervision of Star Trek expert, expert Ben Robinson. (laughs) This is among the largest starships that uh, Eagle Moss has ever done, offering the ultimate in detail and craftsmanship, because you know how good they are with the detail in the tiny little ships. Well, now imagine if you've got like four or five times the size of a ship, that you can play with. Eh, you know, I'm really bad at math. Maybe it's not four or five times, but <laughs> if it's bigger, you know, then you can actually get more into the detail. Each ship is die cast, hand painted, and comes with an in-depth magazine featuring tons of information about how the ship itself was made here in, you know, our side of reality, and then a bunch of information about uh, about the ships in the Star Trek reality. And, of course, each comes with a special collector's stand so it can look forever as if your ship is flying not just sitting on a table. Yeah, that's still one of the things I love about these ships is that those display stands kind of gently hold the ship. It, you know, poke a hole in the bottom. It, it doesn't detract from the beauty of the model. They really, 
they thought this through well. And get this, there are two ways to get these ships. You can subscribe risk-free. You start out with the 8.5-inch XL Edition USS Enterprise MCC-1701D for 20% off the retail price plus free shipping. You will also receive three exclusive free gifts worth 100 bucks as part of your subscription, and you may cancel at any time. Additional ships will arrive monthly for the same 20% off and with the same free shipping. Now, maybe commitment's not your thing. Maybe there's one ship you would like, or maybe there are a couple of ships that you like, but you don't really want the whole series. That's fine. You can pick and choose from your favorite XL Edition ships online and pay the regular price. In addition to the Enterprise D, other XL Editions now available include the original USS Enterprise, as mentioned earlier in this podcast. Uh, there is the Enterprise E, also as mentioned earlier from the Next Generation movies, of course, and just added the 22nd Century's Enterprise NX-01. The choice is yours. Just visit st-starshipsxl.com and make it so. That address again, st-starshipsxl.com. And thank you again, as always, to Eagle Moss for sponsoring this week's show. With 12 voices on the way, John is limbering up his pipes. I'm not sure that's actually how that works, but while he does whatever he's doing, I'm going to tell you how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Now, I personally can't wait to hear, is it going to be the merry trickster? Is it going to be the old man? Is it going to be the queen of all? What voice will John use for trivia? Let's find out. Written by Joe Minoski. Wait, no. All right. Uh, no, I was yeah. so afraid it was going to be that one. Yeah, I was so I afraid it was going to be I that know. one. <laughs> Have you ever seen, uh, if you look up uh, a comedian that I love, Peter Serafinowicz, and he does, he has a video that is uh, 50 impressions in two minutes. But, but here's the thing. They're not actual people. <laughs> He's just doing voices and then putting a name on it. Say, so, yeah, I'm, I'm imitating this. Yeah. I think you've told me about that before, but I, it's still just a brilliant, brilliant idea. It's yeah. uh, he's amazing. All right, it's reminiscent let, of. Uh, do you remember uh, Adam Adam um, Adam Sandler's Halloween costumes? Look oh, at me. Of course, I'm, I'm crazy under the desk, man. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> he's making stuff up. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I love we're not it. doing the Saturday Night Live podcast. We're not doing the um, Peter Serafinowicz podcast. podcast. Yeah. No. Yeah, we Sadly. did Saturday Night Live last week. That was great. Yeah. It's true, with a with side order of kiss. Mm -hmm. Today's episode, Masks, was written by Joe Minoski. We remember, of course, that Joe started on TNG in Season 4. He contributed most recently the script to Interface, and he wrote parts 1 and 2 of Time's Arrow, and also the acclaimed Darmok. After Next Gen, he goes on to Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Discovery. Uh, also worth mentioning that Naren Shankar worked on this episode uncredited, and he gave it the final polish. Today's episode was directed by Robert Viemer, and uh, his most recent contribution was directing Parallels. This is his final Next Gen episode, and he will be back in the director's chair for one episode of Deep Space Nine. 
There are three deleted scenes, which you can check out on the Blu-ray. Uh, you have a scene in 10 Forward. Jordy, Riker, and Worf are having drinks and snacks, but uh, the food has changed into gross, inedible things. It's actually it's kind of entertaining because uh, they have like some, some beer nuts and kind of a blue drink, and uh, it's just inedible, and even Worf, thinks it's disgusting um, when he finds out that uh, the the biological matter is more akin to blood than a uh, than an actual drink. So it's kind of a fun scene to watch. Uh, there is more discussion of Data's multiple personalities right before uh, Jordy is explaining what that looks like in that positronic net. And toward the end, you have more speculation about what the intent of the alien device is doing to the Enterprise. Is it a weapon, a terraforming device? It is kind of put a little more uh, fine-tuning on that, but it's a discussion that we already have had in the episode. Let's see, guest stars. Uh, well, not really. Um, this is primarily a show that features our main cast. Uh, but there is one guest who has a featured role here. Welcome back to Ricky Deshaun Collins. We met him as Eric before in Liaisons as a little boy who really likes desserts because, come on, who doesn't? The Enterprise is surprised to find a comet from very far away, which is where I thought all comets came from. Deanna Troy is playing substitute teacher for the kids on board the Enterprise in an art class. They're all working on clay sculptures, which raises a very good question. Seriously, where in the world is Alexander? This is totally in his wheelhouse. Probably auditing the class for a little experience is Data, who is not exactly finding the artistic inspiration in clay that he does in painting. He's sculpting hyper-realistic, super-literal objects until he is saved by the bell with a call from the bridge. They found a comet, a big, really old comet. But this being Star Trek, it's a weird comet that seems to reflect back the ship's sensors in a kind of energy wave, one that washes right over data. No one thinks anything of it, and certainly not Deanna, who finds a strange rock sculpture has turned up in her quarters for no good reason. When she leaves, the sculpture spontaneously emits a little light and changes its look with a symbolic inscription at its top. Act 1. The next day in art class, Data is sculpting a very detailed mask out of clay, something that just came to him when using his imagination, when Deanna notices it has an inscription very much like that odd sculpture that showed up in her quarters. And speaking of odd symbols, the Enterprise computers are also showing these glyphs, graphics, hieroglyphics. Nobody knows what to make of them, except Data. For some reason, unknown also to him, he can kind of make out what they're trying to say. Simple words, border, road, message, a few others. Oh, and there's the image of a mask, just like the one he was sculpting out of clay. That one means death. They do have a plan to get to the bottom, literally, of whatever the comet is doing. They'll shoot at it with phasers until they melt away all the comet stuff, and lo and behold, hiding out in the creamy center is a huge, ancient alien structure. Act 2. That's an old alien structure, about 87 million years. No one knows who made it, or how it got to the middle of a comet, but it's definitely transmitting information to the Enterprise. 
Data still isn't sure how, but he thinks he can kind of understand it. And his best guess is that it's a kind of library of an ancient civilization. In his ready room, Picard examines a group of artifacts, the sculptures that keep popping up all over the ship. He's trying to decipher what the ceremonial objects mean, something to do with a direction or a journey, perhaps. Hard to say. Data's undergoing some tests in engineering to see if he can understand why that object is communicating with him. Everything seems normal, but an impulse he can't identify messes with him pretty badly. He even asks Jordy what it's like to lose one's mind. Jordy disconnects the diagnostic equipment, but when he returns to Data, the positronic hookup in his head has taken on an entirely new form. Turning to Jordy, Data now sports one of the same symbols from the artifacts on his head, and he creepily intones that Masaka is waiting. Act 3. Picard has got to see this. So off he goes to engineering to be greeted by Data, who is definitely not Data, but rather Ihat, who offers stern warnings about Masaka. When Counselor Troy enters the room, Data as Ihat kneels down and calls Diana Masaka. He sounds different again. His body language has changed. Picard suggests just maybe it's time to confine Data to quarters. Jordy has some insight into what's going on. It appears that the alien archive is installing personalities into Data. In the same way their computer systems and replicators have been overwritten, Data now has multiple personalities based on those people who created the library. Picard goes off to find Data in his quarters. Well, it's whomever is possessing Data at the moment. This one is the same sort of old and awestruck voice that met Deanna, but soon he switches to Ihat again and warns Picard that Masaka, the queen, is on her way, and she's someone to be feared. Corgano could keep her asleep, which is what you really want, but where's a Corgano when you need him? Data switches over to another personality, a child, it seems, who is afraid of Masaka. The Enterprise shudders as the alien artifact emits a tractor beam, Data's fear ratchets up, but then Ihat emerges again, saying he's done it. Masaka is awake. Responding to an emergency in 10 Forward, Worf and his security team find a serious interior design makeover. The lounge is full of ancient stones and symbols where the tables and chairs and games of Terrace and Paramatch used to be. Act 4. The crew come to the realization that all the artifacts on board, the huge stones, the plant life appearing out of nowhere, all of it is a result of the alien archive rewriting the raw material of the Enterprise. Everything on board is being transformed, and naturally, Picard's sense of protection outweighs his sense of fondness for antiques. They need to find a way to stop it, and Worf suggests a manually launched photon torpedo which he will try to make so. Down in engineering, and so making it so, Worf and Jordy notice something odd about that photon torpedo. It's full of snakes. Why'd it have to be snakes? Just a second later, engineering transforms vines, rocks, an image of Masaka on the monitor. Oh, and fire. They beam out. The bridge is a little safer, a little bit less on fire, the command crew get to work coming up with a new plan. It's all super interesting that the alien library is changing everything on board down to a molecular level, but it needs to stop. 
Jordy suggests he might be able to access whatever system is enabling that change, and Picard says he'll try again to directly confront Masaka. Only way to do that is through Data. What Picard finds in Data's quarters is a new guise. This time it's an old man who refers to Masaka as his daughter, and even he says that Corgano is the only one who can talk to her. Picard's not making much progress there. And who should pop into Data's mind again but Ehat, who is still part impish, part fearful. Ehat doesn't want to confront Masaka. He's afraid he'll end up being sacrificed. Picard tries to bargain that he'll be the one to step in. He'll be the one to confront her. What Ehat says he'll need is a sign to summon her. Okay, so give me the sign, says Picard. Data, as Ehat begins to explain... It's a line with a curve over it, kind of like a sunrise over the horizon, and it's a symbol that has shown up before. Ehat is suddenly struck with fear, and the personality of the old man returns, again warning that only Corgano can stop Masaka. And really, at this point, Corgano is simply not interested in that party. Picard gets the rest of the symbol out of the old man before Data's next transition again into the scared child. This time the child says that Masaka sent the others away, and it will take them days to die. Act 5. Geordi establishes enough of a connection to the alien computer to transmit the symbol that was shown to Picard. Almost instantly, the ship around Picard, Troy, and Worf transforms into a kind of ancient temple. They find some of the familiar symbols as well as some new ones, including a horned character, they can't quite figure out the context, but perhaps Cargano and Masaka are changing places, constantly in a struggle with each other, and this symbol is an animal, kind of like a hunt. Well, who, of course, should show up at this point but Data, now in the guise of Masaka, and with quite the attitude. He, as she, sporting a version of the mask Data had created earlier, and she is just in no mood to hear out the captain or anyone else about what is happening to the ship. Back to the drawing board, or more specifically a computer, with Geordi. If they input the new symbol they discovered in the temple into the alien transformation program, then maybe, just maybe, it will summon Corgano. Or do something terrible. Or not. But either way, it's the only chance they've got. What happens, though, is not entirely unexpected for an episode titled Masks. A different-looking ritualistic mask appears on the computer terminal, and the appropriate thing to do is wear it. Back to the temple, and now it's Picard taking on a new character. He is Corgano. Ooh, snap! Masaka is surprised to see Corgano, assuming she had gotten rid of him. Corgano explains that Masaka can't be the prey forever and ever. It's time to switch positions. Ultimately, Masaka can't be alone in this, can't be totally done with Corgano. Masaka will have to be the hunter, chasing Corgano from the sky, and to get there, Masaka will need to get some rest. That logic is pretty good. So Masaka takes a nap. With Masaka slash Data out cold, the Enterprise transformed back into its normal state, and Picard has some time to reflect with Data, who is now back to his normal state as well. Weird how Data had created Masaka's mask in clay before any of this weirdness transpired, and Data is glad to be rid of the potentially dozens of other personalities that were competing for space in his brain. 
Picard congratulates him, though, on the remarkable experience he's just been through, literally embodying the memories and personalities of a long-dead civilization. It's so unique, unlike anything anyone else might have experienced. Except, of course, you know, Picard, because he did that too a couple of years ago. But no, 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 yours is cool too, Data. Good job. The end. That's a callback, isn't it? That is. That is yeah. a little bit of callback. The inner yeah. light. The beloved. The inner light. Yeah. Well yeah. done. Thank you. Uh, two things really quickly. First of mm-hmm. all, I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to talk about how you write your recap because your mm-hmm. week to do your recap is your own. Yep. Uh, I'm a tiny bit disappointed that there was no um, eyes wide shut reference for <laughs> Act Five. <laughs> Because it felt to me like that was coming. Oh, no. Oh, no. Not from you. I mean, from the episode. Like, you know, yeah. when, when Picard goes in and very sort of like, I'm not who you think I am. <laughs> I'm someone else entirely in this mask. Um, yeah, because masks. Uh, the other thing, too, I'm not sure. It seems to me, though, like when all those little glyphs are like bouncing around the screen. Mm-hmm. It's possible that, that really they just wanted to play Settlers of Catan. It kind of looked like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I wouldn't have blamed them either. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants your sheep. <laughs> um, I have to admit that when writing this recap, um, mm-hmm. which took a long time to do, I, I'll just I'll, I'll just be upfront about that. Uh, some write themselves, some don't. Um, I thought about just essentially uh, using all the lyrics from Turn to Stone by ELO somewhere <laughs> in there. But look, I, I have my limits. And uh, I just honestly had to get it done. That's that. That was the goal. <laughs> just get it done. I'm so sad, though. Yeah, I know. Because you're right. That would have been, yeah, yeah. It's, the city streets are empty now. The lights they shine no more because the city's inside a comet. Right, right. And we've gotten yeah. to a point where it could have done. Yes, I'm turning to stone. I can't come home. I can't come home. I'm turning to stone. I've been gone this for long. I can't carry on. I'm turning. I'm turning. I'm turning to stone. I would have done that. Yeah, but I. Didn't. I'm a bigger fan. Honestly, I'm a bigger fan of the idea of an ELO podcast than a KISS podcast, in case you're wondering. I, if we're looking to decide what's going to be our 12th or 13th. I'll do both. After I'll do both. Well, I'm telling you. All right. I love them both. Can we do ELO first? Sure. Can we do ELO first? Sure, you got it. Okay. Um, Good. I, I think we mentioned this one time before, that kind of like uh, a Prairie Home Companion, uh, where all the kids are above average. I, f- I feel that way on the Enterprise. All the kids are above average because they're all creative. They're all artistic. They work in clay. They just, they're, they're awesome, those kids, including Eric. Not, maybe not so much Alexander, but look, they're all, they're all great. Jeremy Astor, he's a good kid. I have, I have high hopes for that kid. I don't know. Honestly, I think that uh, Alexander's goblet was better than uh, Eric's bird. Look, Eric just got started. He hadn't been at it you for two know. weeks. You like, don't <laughs> know. You don't know. Could have been in there for a month at that table working on that thing. Yeah, the, the, the problem is you beat up Alexander so much that I find myself wanting to defend him, even though I really never liked that character. But I find myself... I like, mostly feel sorry for Alexander, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Except when we're talking about what he makes in art class, and then you're like... Terrible. Crucify him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Speaking of art... Do you yes. mind if I ask? So, so like, Deanna shows up in her quarters, yeah, and Beverly's there with her, 
And Beverly's like, what's this? Okay, first of all, weird that Deanna didn't notice the three-foot-tall new thing on her table when she walked in. But then they're yeah. like, oh, maybe it was left uh, in your quarters by a secret admirer who got into your quarters <laughs> somehow yeah, thank you. while you yes. weren't here. Yeah. I'm thinking skip exercise class. I'm thinking skip exercise class and either ask the computer who dropped this off or get mm-hmm. in touch with security. Now, security's going to be closed for the next hour because the head of security is leading the exercise class. Right. I'm thinking, though, that some things might be more important. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. That should have been a way bigger red flag. But uh, we'll just deal with it later. Somebody's been in my room. Like, there's even proof this time. I'm not. It's not like those other weeks when I'm just like crazy. I'm like, I think there was somebody in there. No, Mm -hmm. they Mm -hmm. they left a thing. They did the the world's most awkward leave behind. Yeah. Um, Look, Ken, we're going to get to a point in today's podcast, uh, usually reserved for the very end where we um, we talk about production value, we talk about writing, we talk about what we got out of it. But this is something that I felt like I needed to plant early um, because it sort of colored my my experience, my level of enjoyment with this episode. Yeah, there is just an awful lot of Picard talking. Now, now look, normally we love Picard talking and we love Patrick Stewart as Picard talking, but this is just a lot of words that are stating the obvious sort of spoon feeding speculation to the audience. And um, that is in fact, one of the problems with one of the cut scenes is that we literally get the same information. If you watch that deleted scene a third time saying like, um, so what do you think is happening here? Well, I think it's an alien library rewriting everything over here. Really? What do you think it is? Well, see, it's like this. Uh, everything in the Enterprise is being turned into a thing from that alien culture. Now, maybe, maybe when you write a script um, and you're aware that certain scenes will be cut, yeah, you sort of plant these ideas along the way so that right. if one scene gets cut, you're not leaving the audience out in the dark. But um, we'll we'll talk about what I think is one of the other big problems at the end here. But but that that was that was one that just stood out to me. I got to say, you can't really say it's a problem with one of the deleted scenes because they deleted it. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, right? I mean, you know, well, so it, it's it, like... the, the deleted reinforces a problem with the episode. OK, shall we say. OK. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah. Um, I had a moment where I just wanted like I wanted somebody to turn around and yell at somebody. Mm-hmm. Not just, you know, for no reason. But mm-hmm. like when Data says, Jordy, what does it feel like when a person is losing his mind? I wanted Jordy to go, why are you asking me? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Why would you think I would know that? That's that's a, that's probably a better question for somebody yeah. else. I'm sorry I snapped. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Hey, uh, by the way, and I know that this is, of course, you're, you're expecting that I would make this connection. Every time they mention Masaka, yeah. I'm thinking of Moussaka, and oh. then I'm hungry for Greek food. Interesting. See, mm-hmm. I, I kept thinking of Masala, oh. and I was hungry for Indian. I, I, I like all of the above. And maybe now, <laughs> since you said that, I'm thinking of Masala, and now I want Italian. <laughs> See, the problem is I'm also thinking of Masala, and I want to go back and watch uh, Spartacus. Oh. <laughs> Not Spartacus. No, it's the one with Heston. Uh, Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur, there thank you. you. Go. There you go. Yeah, they're both epic. But yes, Ben-Hur, that's what I meant. Mm, okay. Um, yeah. See, again, this is a note that I took that really probably belongs at the end. This is one of the strangest edited episodes of Next Gen I think I've ever seen. You can feel there are moments where you feel like they just cut the moment Hmm. because they they just needed to jump to the next scene where you don't 
usually when you get to the end of an act, you know that that is coming. The music swells, you fade out, you go to commercial, right? Um, and, and even in shows that don't have commercials, there's a beat that you hit before you either go from one scene to the next or you end the act and you move on to the next act. This was literally like a character being in the middle of a thought. <laughs> well, here's this thing and then go away. And it's, you know, it was really strange just a very strange. And another uh, another oddity about this episode. So we've talked and we've kind of joked before about how few people there are on board a ship with over a thousand people. Mm -hmm. This episode feels really empty. Like it really is just the seven of them and and Eric, yeah. um, <laughs> who, who I wonder who's watching after him if everything around him is turning into rocks. Well, there, there were also the two no names that were still standing outside Data's door. Oh, there were, and and short work yeah. is done of them by Data. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. what a great idea that was to put two, you know, meat bag security guys, <laughs> right, outside yeah. of the killer robot's door. Yeah. <laughs> right, they're really going to have a chance of stopping it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually, when you talk about, I kept thinking it was going to come into the story. Mm -hmm. But then there were other things that I kept thinking that were going to come into the story. But the fact that there was almost nobody else on board the Enterprise. Mm -hmm. And I actually wonder, too, because they said at one point when they're all trying to decide what's going on, they do say that the probe or the artifact is using their DNA to sort of recreate itself. Now, it's also using material that it's finding on the Enterprise. But they do actually say that it's using their DNA. Right. Was there anything, nothing in the, um, nothing in the, uh, nothing in the Blu-ray, nothing in the deleted scenes that are like... Yeah, and by the way, everybody who's missing, uh, that's because they're being turned into these they're, they're plants. plants. Yeah, now, now they're plants. Yeah. It could be. Um, yeah, I mean, it's possible. Although, you know, wow, thank goodness that whatever that was didn't get the seven characters that we're yeah. following. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, there, there's nothing specific about that. There's nothing that alludes to it. But sure, I, I mean, it, I, I was kind of thinking of, um, uh, oh, uh, by any other name in uh tos and you have crew members turned into little you know bricks little styrofoam yeah bricks laying around the enterprise and in that it makes sense that then you have a very quiet ship because everybody is just a little they're a little rock or there's also the one where i can't remember which episode it is but beverly has the famous line if there's nothing wrong with me there must be something wrong with the universe like uh, everybody's disappearing down to her yeah i i, I wondered if they're going to make something of that with the dna uh, like, wow, there's a, a creature on board or, or something. that, And then you see them transform back into it. But And then I thought, well, maybe it's just a budget thing. You don't have guest stars. You, you don't have a lot of extra crew. But then I thought, they spent a lot of budget on the production design. Right. All these sculptures and all this stuff. So, yeah. Although maybe that was just laying around at Paramount. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> you know? Um, nice. Yeah, but there's a very TOS thing in this episode, and that is, at the end, Picard taking a tip from Captain Kirk and just talking the bad guy to death. Just talk it out, and that guy would rather take a nap than to listen to one more word. Spiner and John Champion are not the only ones that can do different voices. Check this out. So cold. Come sit by my side and tend the fire. Not bad, right? 
So you know how we talk about episodes that have um, sort of the air of importance or the elements that make you think that the episode should be important? Sure. And that can sometimes trick us into thinking the episode is important? Uh, okay. Yes. All right. Yes. This, this kind of, to me, is masks. And I'm not... Well, there was a lot that I actually really liked about this episode. I am a mm-hmm. huge fan of creation myths. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a, um, a fantastic thing on the East Pediment of the Parthenon. <laughs> mm. uh, the East Pediment of the Parthenon uh, shows the birth of Athena. And we know that Athena was born at dawn because of what happens on the East Pediment of the Parthenon. Uh, this is from ancientgreece.org is the website, uh, you know, which centers largely on ancient Greece. Oh, that's good. Good that they had that name then for that website. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Good thing it wasn't taken. Yeah. Uh, the horses of Helios, or the sun, are depicted as if they are about to rise above the horizon, pulling behind them life-giving sun. Uh, the horses' faces are depicted in vigorous activity and full of energy. In contrast to the group of horses at the other end, uh, the north end, uh, they appear fatigued and labored with bulging eyes, open mouths, and tense muscles to end their journey below the horizon. The horses of Selene, or the moon, are tired, for they are at the end of their journey across the night sky. Hmm. Which is neat. That's uh, that's sort of like what's going on here with uh, uh, Corgano and, and Masala. Masala? Masaka. Masaka. <laughs> Masaka. Yeah, now yeah. it's going to be all confusing. It's just, mm-hmm. but, I'll, mm-hmm. but I'll have a second order, because, mm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, my favorite creation story is uh, one that's sort of symbolized by the yin-yang symbol. Um, the one part says, I am whole, except for this one part that's missing. And the other part says, I am whole, except for this one part that's superfluous. And then they come together mm. and they make all of creation. That's neat. Yeah. yeah. Um, I really appreciate a good creation story. Uh, I really love good mythology stuff. And, and we get that here, I think, uh, but I'm not sure why. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, because like, it felt like it should be prelude to something. It felt like we should be leading up to a thing. And even in like the whole thing with the two of them chasing each other, there's still a fantastic, and it's just a throwaway line, but it's Ehot, yeah. who I kept wanting to call Loki. Yeah. It's Ehot saying, legend has it that she chopped him up and used his bones to make the world. Yep. That, is like, that is like a five-second creation story that is a whole creation story. Right. Which is so neat. And then I thought, okay, so where are we going? It's, oh, oh, we're done. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, I mean, the, the only elements of the story, the, the only elements of the mythology that you learn that really have anything to do with it, it, it is simply the, the back and forth between Masaka and Corgano. But, but even then, it's sort of anticlimactic. You know, there, there aren't details in their creation story that, that really lend themselves you having any better understanding of them or of the struggle that that is at hand right. here right it's sort of like you will learn our ancient history or you will die yeah. oh okay <laughs> right yeah well i did yeah, it got oh, it okay well then you won't die got like, it okay well, no you see ya yeah you guys chase each other. oh okay all right is this guy's turn to chase <laughs> okay fine fine see ya. yeah i think i think think we got mm-hmm. it yeah um yeah i, I was actually going to ask you about that um because I, I think I know my answer already is, is that it's not. But as they started to play with kind of the imagery and the the ancientness and that scene of uh, Picard coming into Data's quarters and you hear that kind of vaguely like pan flute music, mm-hmm. I was trying to figure out what inspirations they were taking to come up with this culture. Mm-hmm. And did any of it feel 
weird or inappropriate to me. You know, and it's not like a code of honor thing. It's not like a code of honor thing where you feel like the, the production designers just watched a bunch of like horrifically racist movies from the 30s and then recreated this, you know, right. thing. Um, but I was watching it and because as you do, you know, you only know your own experiences and your own references. So is this, is there a Mayan influence? Is there some other sort of South American culture influence? What are the influences here? And mm -hmm. then I wondered, well, okay, are, are there things about this that just feel sort of uh, uh, derivative? And I, I think by the end of it, I didn't feel that way anymore it was a question i asked myself more in the moment the first time around i'm just curious if you had any kind of weird take on that if there had been anything in particular where they had said oh this is very much like the native american cultures of you know whatever um mm -hmm. well, mm -hmm. I, well i guess of north america <laughs> sorry <Native laughs> right. america. I mean, yeah. wherever where they were from i can't remember for yeah. sure <laughs> um no i mean I, I was sort of thinking about it too it's Ancient symbology is ancient symbology, right? I mean, they actually did say the sun represents many different things in many different cultures, and that's mm -hmm. absolutely true. I mean, mm -hmm. you say, I mean, because, yeah, I did hear a bit of Mayan influence there, but honestly, the, the glyph for Corgano actually seemed uh, sort of Egyptian to me as well. Oh, yeah. But yeah. So, I mean, if you can then say, okay, well, so these symbols of the sun and the moon could come from any one of these cultures, I mean, I think there's just sort of like a shorthand for ancient yeah. somewhere along the way, right? I mean... Go to the go to the cave paintings of Lascaux. They, they, I mean, that's France for crying out loud. <laughs> right. and, and you wouldn't think that that kind of symbology would turn up there. But I mean, it's just. I mean, at one time we were just an ancient people, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's. I mean, I mean, so yes. I mean, if they were doing something that was strictly Mayan, or if they're doing something that was strictly North Amer or Native American, excuse me, or if they're doing something that was strictly African, then you could certainly you might be able to say, hey, cultural appropriation. Boo! But I mean, this really just seemed like oh, like like primitive symbols for sun, yeah, primitive symbols yeah. for moon, eh, yeah. Okay, that's I, fine. I think they pretty well by by the end of it, seeing it in its totality, I think they had pretty well created their own thing. But it was also yeah, like you said, that was the impression that I got. Ultimately, was here's this shorthand to say it's ancient. A lot of rocks, right. uh, some palm fronds right. because we have them all over L.A. <laughs> so this is. <laughs> Just, just call this ancient, you know? Um, right. There are themes here in this episode that I like. You you picked out one, I think, you know, very nicely uh, uh, liking this, uh, a story from ancient Greece. And I think just kind of from an artistic point of view, you know, trying to get a little bit into the mind of the writer and, and what he's trying to do, and in this case, Joe Minoski. And, I, you know, there's one thing that I liked here is that you can sort of make the argument that art is one of the ways that we vie for immortality as individuals, as a culture, even Star Trek, as you and I doing this show, we know it's a statement about how we see ourselves, who are we as people and, and how we want to see ourselves. And in the course of everything that we've done so far in TOS and next gen, um, we've had a few run-ins with alien cultures that have left messages for the future. You know, uh, some way that, that the culture can live on even after the people who lived it are gone. So I referenced the inner light before. The inner light, Picard has this profound experience because the probe allowed him to live another life that was an expression of an extinct culture. So in this episode, it, it's this fascinating idea that a culture would store its knowledge in a way that could replicate itself. 
And okay, maybe a little Borg-like and its insistence on assimilating everything in sight. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe that was just sort of uh, the effect that it had on that technology, on, on the Enterprise, because, well, the Enterprise was a, an unexpected technology to receive it. So it could have been something very specific to that encounter. You know, mm-hmm. um, so it, it's a it, it's a benevolent thing. It, it's something just simply designed to carry out the story of this culture, but acts in a way that is threatening to those receiving it because, well, we didn't have any communication about it ahead of time. We don't actually know for certain, though, that this is a benevolent thing, do we? I mean, just because it's a library that's assembling itself to teach them. I mean, we assume because we're there to learn that it's there to teach them. Mm -hmm. But it might also have been, I mean, it may have been the Borg. I mean, not the Borg, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I mean, it may have been something like that. It may be that it was trying to reestablish itself, not just sort of like let people know about it. Yeah. And then they figured out a way to like, oh, okay, well, why don't we stop it? (laughs) We can figure out a way how to, because it didn't seem to me that Masaka actually wanted, it wasn't just about educating. Because Masaka didn't say, oh, if only Corgano were here to stop me. Hint, hint. Yeah, right. This is not, this was not really about teaching about the society. This was, that's where, that's where this whole episode gets weird to me. I don't know what that thing was doing. I mean, we, we are able to learn from it about this long, long, long dead civilization, I suppose. But how do we know that that wasn't actually what had been the god or goddess, the deity at the time? Yeah. Well, I I can't remember if it was in the deleted scenes or in the episode itself where uh, Riker actually uses the word terraforming. Mm -hmm. And when he did, the thing that I thought of was the Genesis Project from Wrath of Khan. Because mm-hmm. in that, it, you have, of course, Chekhov asking, does it have to be completely lifeless? Uh, because, as we know, Genesis will wipe out anything that's there and rebuild it in its own image. It, it will build this new matrix on top of whatever was there. So when I heard that in the episode, or in the deleted scene, rather, that's how I thought about this thing. Yeah, it's just going to impose whatever it has on top of whatever it can find. But maybe if it had the ability to impose that on, oh, say a lifeless moon or something like that, that it wouldn't be as bad to just then, oh, we we come across this civilization that rebuilt itself, that, that rose up again because they had the ability to store that information in another format until it could express itself again. Well, the problem with that, though, is, I mean, you end up with like a V'ger thing or a probe from Star Trek IV thing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. trying to do anything bad. It's just taking over everything that it comes in contact with. I mean, the, the one yeah. thing I will say, yeah. though, is it did need, it needed a computer, apparently. And you say, what does God need with a computer? <laughs> Sorry. It did need <laughs> yeah. a computer to actually turn itself into something, because you got to figure that comet has passed by something else in its 87 million year parabola. Yeah, right? true, true. Yeah. yeah, but it was it was the communication with the uh, with the ship's computer. Yeah, that gave it a gave it a foothold. I like that Jovanovsky is playing with big ideas here, playing with big themes, and and I respect that he was making this sort of crazy. Well, it, it was a way to tell a Star Trek story, but unlike other Star Trek stories, and and remember, he's the guy who wrote Darmok. 
Yeah. And you have similar themes of communication, metaphor, language, and understanding in that that you have in this. Well, what we really need to do is understand the story that's trying to be told and then speak to it in that same language. Mm. So there is a very similar theme in those two episodes, even they play out, well, shall we say, a little bit differently. (laughs) Um, Well, we knew why we were doing it in Darmok, though. We were doing it to try to establish communication. Yes. Like, this is actually, this is like, you're playing a game for your life now. Yep. Need to shut it down. Need to shut it down. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) Why? Oh, if only there was somebody to ask. I mean, it's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And and this is also one of those sort of uh, circle of life type stories. And they they keep alluding to that whole thing about the sun and the moon and chasing each other, life and death, dark and light in this civilization rising and then falling. And then maybe we assume it tries to rise again. (laughs) You know, we don't know. At the end, Picard just says a Federation science team is going out there. Good luck, guys. (laughs) You know. Wow. Yeah, because how long will mm-hmm. Masaka hit snooze? Yeah. That's the question. Yeah. Although, in fairness, it's been a long time, apparently, since Corgano was in pursuit. Um, sure. i got to say really quickly, there was one science-y thing in this science-y, fiction-y sort of idea that I did like. Mm-hmm. I had no problem at all with all the artifacts showing up out of nowhere hmm. um, because they actually explained the part where it was using the materials that were already on the Enterprise and turning them into something else. Right. Um, I read the the book, The Diamond Age, by Neil Stevenson. Oh, golly. Probably close to 20 years ago now, as Mm -hmm. we're recording. And there was this really neat thing in that book. There were basically two types of manufacturing technology uh, that were coming online for individuals. You didn't go to the store anymore. You you basically 3D printed something, except before we knew to call it a 3D printer. Mm -hmm. At the time, it was just absolutely revolutionary, though. Um. And there were two things. There was either seed technology or feed technology. Hmm. And feed meant that the raw materials were literally fed to a household, like through a tube, Hmm. right? And you got charged for every bit of it. While seed was a new kind of nanotech that, if memory serves, would basically find the raw materials it needed from everything around it uh, on a microscopic level to make the thing that was needed. I don't know if it worked for food, but it worked for like all the other stuff that you might want to make. And I was really grateful that they explained that in this episode, mm-hmm. that they said how it was happening. Uh, it would have been great if they had explained where it all went. <laughs> <laughs> because, like, all of a sudden when it's like, oh, look, we solved the puzzle. And, of course, everything's fine again. Because what? We're going to fly around with all these glyphs for, like, the next week or two weeks or five? Um, or however long the show goes. Another 20 years? Who can say? I kind of wish they had – I kind of wish they had just – I wish they had – Maybe explain that a bit, or it actually would have been fun if, like, for the next six episodes, they're like, up, oh, found it on one of the statues. Just, yeah. just rocks everywhere. Well, put it in the reclamation thing, and uh, yeah. yeah, we'll be done with them at some point. With whatever just happened, having just happened, it is time to see what we can learn from masks. I won't say I'm disappointed, John, but um, you only did two of the 12 voices that I expected. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I thought about doing one now to bring it up, uh, but then I decided, no, that was going to be your thing. 
and I don't want to steal your thunder. <laughs> I really put you on the spot with that. I apologize. It was unfair, and uh, and it was wrong, and it was unfair. Hey, the episode is Masks, and this is the part of the show where we talk about the messages, morals, and meanings of the given episode and try to figure out whether the whole thing holds up. Um, and, and we head in that direction now with Mr. John Champion. Uh, does this episode hold up as far as you're concerned? This episode, Masks. Well, Ken, I'll tell you. <laughs> I'm sorry. Was <laughs> <Is> that... <laughs> no? That was not bad. No, okay. All right. It's right. fine. Yeah. I'm glad you didn't do the whole episode that way, but yeah, yeah. way to go. Yeah. You, only nine more before the end yeah. of the show. <laughs> Um, this episode commits the cardinal sin of any mm, maybe not so good entertainment Uh, it's boring Hmm. Uh, it plays into every unfair stereotype about the next generation which is that it's full of people standing around talking I, I usually like a quiet slow build look I'm the guy who loves the motion picture this the the pacing in this is terrible um and, and i hate that it just seems to be a vehicle for brent to do voices hmm. he's a great actor uh please don't misuse that uh because that that's sort of what it feels like here and um i i didn't include this in the trivia because it's a somewhat well-known thing but uh, they had been wrapping up production on the previous episode, and then the uh, the script for this literally came like the night before. And then it's, here, now you're playing all these different roles in this episode. So go find the voices, go find the, the, the physical characterization of all these different characters tomorrow morning. And not a really easy thing to hand an actor. And he does it well. Um but again, that just seems to be the only thing we're really relying on here because as a story, it, it's kind of incoherent. It's inconsequential. And because it's inconsequential, it's not very interesting, but, but like, I'll give them this. It is well produced. It is well acted. Um, production design is mostly really cool. Um, it would hold up in terms of those individual pieces. Uh, now, I said before the editing I thought was terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just really, and, and editing is not a thing that should stand out to you, but in this one it did. Um, but there's no way that this episode can hold up when judged as a cohesive piece of entertainment or even a cohesive piece of Star Trek, the, the pantheon of Star Trek, as it were. Um, so no, no, it just it doesn't hold up for me. E- even though you know, look, we we got so many comments from people saying, "Oh, you have finally arrived at the worst episode of Next Gen ever." I I don't know, I don't know that it necessarily is. It's not not my favorite. I think it might be a very long time before I can figure out what truly is my least favorite. Um, hmm. But I can tell you right now, it doesn't hold up. Um, <laughs> and and you, how about you? Yeah, this felt like, honestly, I kind of want to see the movie that this could have been. Because, I mean, like, I joked earlier, what does God need with a computer? Mm -hmm. But, I mean, we got more out of Star Trek V than a lot of people thought we should get out of Star Trek V. Star Trek V is a bad movie with some really interesting messages. This is a well-produced episode of television uh, with no message whatsoever. (laughs) It's, 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 and it's an interesting sort of like lead up. Like, I kept thinking something was going to happen. Like, we're going to find out people are disappearing because this thing is not eating them, but turning them into something else. Or when Ehot saw uh, uh, Troy, 
and thought she was Masaka and fell to his knees. And then when she walked up towards the throne, I thought something's going to happen. Something's going to change. Something's going to happen. This is going to kick into like a new thing. And then it just kind of ends, which is sad because, I mean, he really, I want to play the role playing game that exists in the world where this society started. I like, I mm-hmm. mean, the Pantheon is full. We don't have names for all of them, but we've got Masako, uh, you know, who's the queen, the goddess. She's also death. We've got Ehot, who is uh, sort of the trickster. We've got this weird sort of like eager servant. We've got this fearful child. We've got whatever her father's name was. That was my favorite character, actually. That felt to me like the most well-realized mm-hmm. character that Spiner mm-hmm. was playing. Um, we have Corgano, who is sort of like the king and the moon. I mean, there's like a ton of fantastic, there's like a ton of fantastic backstory here. And and then we're done. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and that's just, that is just so weird to have happen. And yet, there was also no point. There was no message. Like... I don't know necessarily the library was trying to take things over. I don't know necessarily the library was not trying to take things over. I have no idea what just happened, yeah. except that the Enterprise almost got destroyed, and then uh, it was not destroyed because <laughs> Picard you know, can think on his feet and wear a mask. I mean, it just—it's weird because it feels like I want—I want to see it rewritten, honestly, or I want to see what part two of this might have been because it is so rich. It's it's the way I started the last segment. It, it, there there are so many things here that make this seem like it really ought to be an important episode, and it chooses instead to wrap itself up in forty eight minutes. My my impression my impression from reading what others on the production staff thought was they they, they got the script from Joe Manoski and they all like Joe Manoski and he's done such great work. Mm-hmm. They go he is really attempting to tackle some big ideas, some big themes here. Um, we have no idea what this is or if this works, <laughs> you know? Um, I don't I don't normally like to just be spoon-fed everything like you said earlier. Yeah, yeah. I, neither of us like that, but yeah, just give me a hint. Yeah. Just give me a hint of where you're heading. And then, I mean, you know, there are many people who have accused me of making up lots of stuff about an episode. <laughs> I can't even make up anything for this, you know, because it's like, I just... It just it it goes and then it stops, but it doesn't really take us anywhere. Yeah. Certainly, yeah. But maybe there's a message uh, that I that I that I missed, John. Uh, messages. Um. Okay, and does that message hold up? Um. Okay. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You know, Roddenberry is into a ton of stuff. We've talked a lot lately about the podcasts that you can check out uh, for and growing. You can find those at podcasts.roddenberry.com. But I would actually just suggest that people go to roddenberry.com and poke around all over the place because uh, there's stuff there that you can buy. Uh, There's the Roddenberry Foundation, which is working to make the world a better place. Um, you know, uh, into the future, which is a good thing for a Roddenberry to do, I think. Um, you know, future stuff. So, podcasts.roddenberry.com, and then also just plain old roddenberry.com to find out about the rest of the Rodden business. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, be sure to check out Trek FM. That is Trek.FM. Hey, do you want to help support this show? That would be nice of you. Patreon.com slash Mission Log is the place to find out more. And finally, for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. Next week, Eye of the Beholder. 
some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. no one in that other system is expecting the return of that comet because wow and transmission When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.